Coming, coming to the table is something we all do of our own accord. You are not presented at the table by another or by your parents. You come, you take, you eat, you drink, you give thanks, you remember. And you declare, as we've seen over the last few weeks, that you are publicly assuming, publicly embracing the vows that were sealed to you in your baptism. Right, so here, you personally receive the benefits of the new covenant, and thus you publicly assume the obligations of the covenant. Right, that's sort of the structure. So the, the table then, the Lord's table, is an act of covenant renewal, which means it's a form of oath-taking. And as we've previously seen, Calvin, for instance, viewed the confession of faith, the creed, which comes after the word and before the supper, he viewed that creed as a public vow. To confess the creed is to publicly affirm the faith, right? It is to say, I understand, I believe, and I will live, and I will die in this faith. After all, it's a baptismal creed. So again, it's publicly affirming that the faith into which I was baptized, I now publicly embrace. And thus, a robust profession of faith must be made before coming to the supper. And that's just the function of the creed in the liturgy. That's what the creed does. The creed is a public and verbal pledge of allegiance. And what it does is it leads us to and is sealed in the supper, which is also a public and visible pledge of allegiance. Now, if you grew up around the time that I did, and you went to the public schools, you said the Pledge of Allegiance every morning at the beginning of the school day. So what's that, 180 times a year? And then you said it at sporting events, you know? Every middle school volleyball game, you said it again. So it turns out over the course of a year, you're publicly pledging allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands 200 plus times. Right? And you might pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ 12 times, depending on the church you went to. And even then, you wouldn't even understand it as a public oath-taking pledge of allegiance. It'd be more like a little devotional shot of grace so you can go back into your life. We should be, beloved, suspicious of this imbalance. And that's putting it mildly. I mean, what could go wrong, really? Pledging allegiance to America 20 times to one versus the amount of times you publicly pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ? I don't see... I don't see how that could be a problem at all. Nothing could get skewed there. So what I want to do is I want to continue and unpack this today from our text in 1 Corinthians 10, the New Testament lesson. The outline is there in your bulletin. We'll make three points. Israel, the church, and the pagans. 
So first, Israel. Now, we know from the rest of the letter that the Corinthians suffered this kind of spiritual overconfidence. Right? Paul tells us they're puffed up, they're arrogant, they're self-assured. They heavily, heavily accent the now, what we already possess in Christ. We're already people of the Spirit. We're already kings. We already reign. We have the gospel. We have been baptized. We have the supper. And Paul writes here in chapter 10 in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he writes to disabuse them of this delusional overconfidence, right? This lack of balance that they have. And it's really quite shocking what he says to a Christian church here. He says, basically, you're very much like Israel in the wilderness. And you're subject to the same threats and the same tests and the same failure and the same or even greater judgment than they were. Israel, he says, our fathers... Notice he's writing to a Greek Gentile church and he calls Israel their fathers, right? Their fathers were all baptized. They all ate spiritual food. They ate, drank water from a rock. They all partook of Christ. And the rock that was with them in the wilderness was Christ. Now there's a lot to unpack here and we're not going to do it this morning. But su- suffice it to say this. Israel partook of a type of baptism at the Red Sea. They ate and drank a type or a foreshadowing and anticipation of the supper in the manna. They partake of Christ who is really present to them in the forms and shadows of the Old Testament. These are astonishing gifts to Israel. Nevertheless, Paul says, nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased. Not with a few, but with most of them. So it's a rebuke to the Corinthian overconfidence, and it's a rebuke to us, right? It's meant to induce a kind of sobriety. right? Don't think, Paul is saying to the church, because you've had a conversion, and you've passed through the sea, and you've been baptized, and because you eat and drink at the table, that God is pleased or somehow you're immune to judgment. He wasn't pleased with them. And they were not only not immune to judgment, Paul says they were overthrown in the wilderness. A whole generation was lost. The generation that saw the signs of the Exodus and ate the manna from heaven, their bodies were strewn in the wilderness. And you too, Paul is saying, you too, covenant member, partaker of the covenant signs, you too can be overthrown in the wilderness. And this is the point the Corinthians needed to hear. Because you are not yet fully, right, by sight, in body and soul, in the promised land. Right, and Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 are taken up with this whole theme for two chapters there. The writer likens the church to Israel in the wilderness and, continue, and continually says, today, during this time, this time of wilderness existence, this time, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness. That's the refrain. Right? So Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say, look, 
you're in the new covenant, you have more grace, don't worry about the kinds of disasters that Israel had. We're beyond that. No, he doesn't. He says in verse 6, these things happened as examples for us. Types is literally the word here. Israel's history is type, typological history. It's shadow history. Christ is present in it, but it points forward. So there are examples for us. So when we look at this history of our fathers in Israel, we have vivid object lessons, Paul says, for the church. And then he goes on to give us four examples of Israel's failure, Israel's sinning in the wilderness. Four examples. First, there's idolatry, which is sort of the heading here, the root of all sin. Do not be idolaters, he says in the text, as some of them were. And then he cites Exodus 32 and the incident of the golden calf. The people sat up to eat and drink, and they sat down to play. Secondly, there's sexual immorality. Paul says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. It's a reference to Numbers 25. So idolatry, immorality. Third, he says this, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. That's a reference to Numbers 21, where the people complained about the provision of manna and desired other food. So right here, notice, we've moved from what we might think are big sins, which may not concern us. That would be a mistake, but we might think that. And we've moved to something closer to home, to impatience, and to questioning God's providence, right? Idolatry, sexual immorality, impatience with God's providence. And finally, get this, grumbling. Grumbling. This is a reference to what we heard read from the Old Testament lessons from Numbers 14, where the people grumbled and complained against Moses and against the authorities God had placed them under. So, idolatry, immorality, impatient testing, and critical grumbling. These things happen to them as examples or warnings to us. They were written, Paul says. They were actually placed in Holy Scripture, he says, for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That is this time that we're in, the time of refining and sifting, the time of purification, the time of judgment unto salvation and glory. That time. These things were written for you and me. Here's the warning then that Paul gives based on this wilderness debacle. This is what he says to the Corinthian Christians. Therefore, let anyone Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So, essentially he's saying, if you think you're secure because you're baptized and you partook of the sacraments, that somehow you're beyond danger or threat. If you think you stand, you may be in the most danger of all. 
If you're sitting there thinking, well, this Corinthian stuff in the wilderness with Israel, that doesn't apply to me. Paul knows his audience. He's like, look, if you think that, you better be careful. Take heed, he says. Take heed, lest you fall. It's a call for self-examination. It's a call for humility, for fear and trembling, for an end to presumption. We all have to do it. We have, it's, it's a call for a sober assessment of our astonishing weaknesses. Of our ability to defect in an astonishingly fast manner. That's Israel. She is an example, Paul says for us. So the second point is the church then. Verse 14. Here's his Moral or ethical conclusion. Therefore, my beloved, he loves the Corinthians for all the turbulence they've created for him. He loves the Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It's in the context of idolatry as the heading of these, this other array of sins that Paul then speaks of the supper. Right? These are famous verses on the supper which follow. We read them in our call to worship. Right? Very fascinating verses, but please get this. What Paul is doing here is he's reasoning from the nature of the supper to the kinds of people we must be to come to the supper rightly. That's the logic. Here's what the supper is. Here's how you should live. Here's how you should be. The supper is the source of his argument. It's the source of his moral reasoning. And so the logic that the apostle uses here, his inspired logic, is like this. Because this is the nature of the supper, therefore you must flee from idolatry. So what does he say about the supper? Well, again, it's in the call to worship. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The cup over which we bless the name of God in the prayer of thanksgiving. It is a communion in, it is a partaking of the blood of Christ. And the same is true of the bread which we break. It's a participation in, a communion, a koinonia, a fellowship in the body of Christ. Now, whatever this means, and it is a high mystery, it certainly rules out the view that the bread and wine are mere symbols. They are, he says, a communion, a partaking in Jesus' own body and blood. We become one with Christ, we participate in his very humanity, and then the next verse says we're bonded in unity with one another. So the supper bonds us in mystical unity with Christ and with one another. There's more we could say about this, but it's not to Paul's immediate point. So that is the church. The third point, then, is the pagans. Or you might say the Corinthian situation in its pagan environment. But first, in verse 18, he quickly refers back to Israel. Those who eat the sacrifices are participants in the altar, he says. Now, the the big idea is simply this. Eating and drinking of the sacrifice binds you to the God of the sacrifice. And what that meant for the Corinthians in their pagan context is then spelled out. 
So the apostle had earlier said, idols are nothing. The gods of the nations are non-existent. But that does not mean that worshiping idols is harmless, he says. In fact, he says what the pagans worship or what they offer, they offer not to nothing, not to God, but to demons. Worshiping these false non-existent gods is a form of worship to the principalities and powers. And Paul says this to the church, I don't want you to be participants with demons. And then he makes this statement. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The two are mutually exclusive. Just as you cannot serve God and mammon. So participation in one table, in that table, precludes participation or communion in all other tables. And thus the table of the Lord is a pledge of exclusive allegiance. That's the reason for the title of the sermon. The table of the Lord is a public pledge of exclusive allegiance. To eat at other tables is to worship other gods and thus to provoke the Lord to jealousy. It's a ferocious warning to the Corinthians who were kind of casual about partaking of these pagan feasts. And since meals at pagan tables are not an issue for us, but idolatry is still a big issue, I want to spend a few minutes teasing out the application of this for us. So first, first here, let's make no mistake. Paul is what the tradition has called fencing, or he is guarding the table here. You can't partake of Christ and partake of these pagan feasts. Right? But for us, it means something like this. You can't partake of the table of Christ and the table of mammon. You can't partake of the table of Christ and the table of America. You should be suspicious of pledging allegiance to America 200 times a year. There's only one table where you can pledge exclusive, total, unreserved allegiance. It's that table. The table is exclusive, public oath of allegiance to Jesus Christ, which relativizes all other bonds. So it's not just the kinds of sins Israel committed or the kinds of sins we see in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, you know, drunkenness and not waiting for one another. It's not just those which Paul thinks constitute unworthy participation. We already saw last week, Paul says you have to put away all malice and all evil and partake of the table in sincerity and truth. Here he says this, idolatry precludes participation in the table. But this is a problem for us, right? Because idolatry is the root of all sin in our hearts, Calvin says, are factories of idols. You know, some of my my friends give me the impression that they think only progressive hearts are factories of idols. Apparently, conservative hearts are perfume factories. But Calvin thinks all hearts are factories of idols. The conservative idols, you just have to dig around a little bit to find them. Idolatry is breaking the first commandment. And Paul says, listen, if you're going to come to that supper, you have to flee 
from idolatry. And it turns out that's going to be a tearing, rending experience. If the, the best place to see this with real power and forces in the Westminster Larger Catechism and its exposition of the commandments, especially its exposition of the first commandment in this context. It's question 104. It's very, very long. I'm going to read a small part of it for you. What are the duties required in the first commandment? The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, and fearing him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, and being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. Then follows 23 proof texts in the Catechism. And the next question says this, well, what are the sins that are forbidden in the first commandment? And we don't have time for me to read you this list. But I will read a subset of it. Idolatry, the first thing that Paul says. You'll hear a number of echoes to 1 Corinthians 10 in this answer. Having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God, not having and confessing him as God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things, and taking them off of him in part or in whole. Unbelief, second thing Paul pointed out, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, insensibleness under his judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security. The whole passage in 1 Corinthians 10 is about carnal security. Tempting of God, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, deadness in the things of God. Then I skip a couple paragraphs. Resisting and grieving of his spirit, discontent and impatience at his dispensations. That's the third thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us. And then there are 46 biblical citations. So if that is idolatry, and we must, as Paul says here, flee from idolatry to partake of the supper then we must forsake all sin to come to the table. We've already seen this in last week's sermon. There's a deep logic here. The logic is simply this. No sin will be present at the eschatological wedding feast. And this feast is preparing you for that feast. And so the church seeks to assimilate this feast to the radiant splendor and holiness of that feast. Unbelief, idolatry, and presumption caused Israel's body to be strewn in the wilderness. Paul does not want that to happen to the Corinthians. And I do not want it to happen to us. 
So, this is why there's a robust confession of sins early in the service, right? The liturgy is structured to help you, to help us, right? There's a confession of sins early in the service, which is crucial in coming to the supper. And the ability to examine one's conscience, to test oneself, to judge oneself, and to do so with rigor and with specificity and with depth, as you see in the catechism, is required to come to the table. But here's a crucial point. Once we are sobered by this, this is not works righteousness. Right? This flows from, please get this, this flows from the atoning sacrifice set out on the table. You're already embraced in the covenant love of God in your baptism. You're already embraced in the covenant community of the church. You're already embraced in the solicitude and love of the church, in the teaching and preaching ministry of the church, right? It is that sacrifice which, through the Spirit, creates faith and enables self-examination. Right? We are never detached from that. God in Christ does this for us so that one may then come. And heed the invitation for blessing and not for judgment after the pattern of Israel. Again, to come to the table then is a pledge of total, personal, exclusive allegiance. Those three things are important. Total allegiance, personal allegiance, exclusive allegiance. Because this is communion in the body and blood of Christ, and it's incompatible with idolatry. It's incompatible with unbelief and sin in all its forms. So at the table, then, this exclusive bond, this bond that we have with Jesus Christ and with one another, it becomes concrete and visible. God says a lot of things to us in the table, right? He says, I love you. I gave myself for you. I want communion with you. But another thing he says at the table is this. I brook no rivals. So remember, let us remember, let us take heed from the example of Israel. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. For the supper is the pledge of allegiance. Amen.